The year is 1589. A cruel wind hurls rain at the rugged eastern coast of Scotland and the small village of Tranent. Shutters rattle threateningly against a large stone house. The draft causes the flames of the candles in the large reception room to flicker violently. The trembling light reveals a nightmarish scene. Scotland's deputy bailiff, David Seaton, and several of his cronies are brutally stripping the clothes from Seaton's frightened young maidservant, Gailis Duncan, who is barely in her teens. While she is restrained, they roughly shave all her hair off with a single blade razor and examine every inch of her bruised and bleeding body, groping at newly growing breasts, probing between her thighs, looking for a witch's mark. Galus, still only halfway between woman and child, uneducated and heavily relying on Seton for her livelihood, has been accused of witchcraft by him due to her superior healing skills and his paranoia over the teenager sneaking out at night. After enduring a long spell of torture, which included having her head put into a vice and her fingers crushed, Galus finally confesses and sets into motion what would become one of the most famous witchcraft hearings in Europe the North Berwick Witch Trials. Over 100 people, including respected community members and a rival for the Scottish throne, would be accused of a treasonous plot to kill the paranoid and witch-phobic King James VI. My name is Daniela Sorrentino. And this is She Speaks Volumes. This episode is part of a special series on the feminist history of witchcraft. But also, I've started a new podcast called The Cauldron, and She Speaks Volumes will now be a monthly episode in The Cauldron audio zine, like a special feature in a magazine. This episode has taken me ages to complete. I had wanted to explore the book Witch Cults in Western Europe, written in 1921 by anthropologist Margaret Alice Murray. What ended up happening was a marathon dive into history that challenged and changed my understanding of the witch trials and how I perceived the witch craze in the context of European and global history. I want to be clear, I'm not a historian nor an academic. I like to read and I research and I try to draw my own conclusions from the hard work of others. A complete list of my sources is in the show notes. For this episode, I am using Murray's book for some specific excerpts from the trials. The books Witch Craze by Anne Llewellyn Barstow, Miracles of Our Own Making by Liz Williams, and Abject Eroticism in Northern Renaissance Art by Yvonne Owens. These books will help understand the context of the age. Both Yvonne Owens and Liz Williams' books will be explored in depth in future episodes. Links to all the sources, including the essays and websites I use, are in the show notes. Excerpts from the books are being read by Verna Sorrentino. The voices of the Scottish witches are Susan Harden, Marnie Thompson, and J.P. Wright, who also voices James VI and Amy Garcia is the voice of Joan of Arc.
If you enjoy this episode, you can support my work by donating through the link on the website and in the show notes. All proceeds help me pay the voice actors and cover the cost of production. Witch Cult was initially compelling to me, as Murray was the first anthropologist to look at the era of the witch burnings from the perspective of religious persecution. Her hypothesis was that the persecution of witches was an attempt by the church to wipe out a pre-existing pagan fertility-based religion. Though Murray's research did support her theory, her controversial ideas found no traction in the patriarchal institutions of early 20th century academia. And as an academic, she has been broadly dismissed, and that is not entirely undeserved. There are aspects of Murray's work that could be of interest to contemporary scholars of history, magic, and the craft, but her work is perhaps more useful as an exploration of patriarchal paranoia and anxiety. Murray studied the transcripts of hundreds of court cases concerning witchcraft between the 15th and 17th centuries. And though she acknowledges that the statements were given under severe and brutal torture, she does not seem to take that into consideration in her findings. Therefore, her portrayal of witchcraft is a bit ridiculous, as it is based on testimony gathered while torturing the accused and recorded by biased men. So the picture of witchcraft that emerges is based on the paranoid delusions of the prosecutors, or more appropriately, the persecutors. The period of our history where the witch trials occurred is worth delving into, because these trials did not occur in isolation. They are connected to massive social changes that dictated the rise of nations, the sanctity of science, the embedding of patriarchal views into law, and consequently the social fabric and the subjugation of the earth to property and man's domain. And these things are connected. I... I... It was Agnes Sampson and John Fee and Bessie Tomlinson oh. and Effie McLean Barbara Napier I... And we did meet with the devil and, and plot to raise a storm to murder the king and queen. Seton continued his torture until Galus had named over 60 witches that were involved. Perhaps he was looking for a specific name. The North Barrett trials are still studied today, and Murray's work here resulted in some of the most lucid conclusions in her study of witch cults in Western Europe. The accusation against the witches was that they had met together to plot the murder of the king and queen by witchcraft. The trial, therefore, was on a double charge, witchcraft and high treason, and both charges had to be substantiated. Keeping in mind Lord Coke's definition of a witch as a person who has conference with the devil to take counsel or do some act, it is clear that the fact that the devil's bodily presence at the meetings had to be proved first then the fact of the conference, and finally, the attempts of murder. The reports of the trial do not, however, differentiate these points in any way, and the religious prepossession of the recorders colours every account. 
It is therefore necessary to take the box without the construction put upon them by the natural bias of the Christian judges and writers. The records give in some detail the account of several meetings where the deaths of the king and queen were discussed and instructions given and carried out to effect that purpose. At each meeting, certain ceremonies proper to the presence of the Grand Master were performed, but the real object of the meeting was never forgotten or obscured. Ye sail warn the rest of the sisters to raise the wind this day at eleven hours to stay the Queen's coming in Scotland. Like as they that were convenient at the panace to do their beast and to meet them that were in the panace, and at their meeting they should make the storm universal through the sea. Agnes Samson, Janet Campbell, Joan Fien, Gailey Duncan, and Meg Din, Baptiset de Cat in the Wobster's House. Quick being done, Janet fechet it to Leith, and about midnight, she and the twa link up and twa wifeys call it stobbies came to the pier and saying their words See that there be na deceit among us and they cast the cat into the sea. Side note During my research I discovered something interesting by chance. I was attempting to decipher the Old Scottish in this passage and learned from the Dictionary of the Scottish Language, a link is in the show notes, that the word cat, spelled with two Ts, refers to clay or to repair with straw and clay. In this context, it seems like John Fionn is being accused of taking clay from the devil to cast into the sea to stop the king from arriving in Scotland. What is interesting to me about this is that when I read the accounts of the North Barrett trials, the accused had apparently confessed to throwing a cat into the sea. I can't help but wonder if this is a case of something being lost in translation. Clay figures or poppets are common in the practice of witchcraft, and if you are trying to drown the king, throwing an effigy of him into the sea makes more sense than throwing a cat in. Killing cats is not common in witchcraft or the practice of magic, though it fits neatly into the narrative of witchcraft created by patriarchal institutions. This is the intersection of history and gossip. It is the foggy, scratched lens through which we view and understand our past. John Fionn was tried December 26, 1590 and charged. For the raising of Wendy's at the King's Passing to Denmark and for the sending of Anne Letter to Marion Lenkop and Leith, to that effect, bidding her to meet him and the rest on the sea. Within five days, Cuhair Satan delirtan cut out his hand to Robert Grierson, 
given the word to cast the same in the sea hole la, and therefore, being mounted in a ship, and drank ill cane to the others, Qher Satan said, Ye shall sink the ship, like as they talked they did, also for assembling him slef with Satan, at the king's returning to Denmark. Qher Satan promised to raise and mist, and cast the king's majesty in England. The North Barrett trials are notable because this is not a case of curdling milk or causing illness. This involves high treason, a plot to kill the king, James VI, and his bride. And the trail led from Galas Duncan, the poor maid, to the Earl of Bothwell, a politically powerful man and viewed by James as a potential rival to the throne. The North Berwick trials are the beginning of the Scottish witch hunts that will see hundreds if not thousands of women accused, tortured, raped, and executed as witches. Just looking at one of the accused, Eupham Macalzean. Macalzean was wealthy. She had inherited an estate. One of the charges against her was quite specifically that she had used her skills to relieve the God-ordained pain of women giving birth. She was burned alive on June 25, 1591. James VI gave her estate to one of his buddies. Euphem was not the only independent woman whose wealth was seized and distributed to men during the witch craze. James VI had developed a fascination for witch hunting while in Denmark, and he must have been thrilled to have a hunt of his own. He bought the accused in the North Barrett trials to Edinburgh to be tried, and gave permission for their torture. The trial took two years, and though I could not find a definitive number, there were over a hundred accused, including the Earl of Bothwell, and possibly around seventy were executed. Bothwell was arrested and escaped. Galas Duncan was executed at Castle Hill in Edinburgh on the 4th of December, 1591. I don't think she had reached her 18th birthday. The success of the trial seemed to empower King James. He went on to write Demonology, an influential text written in the form of a philosophical dialogue that promotes witch hunting in the same vein as the Malleus Maleficarum. What can be the cause that there are 20 women given to that craft, where there is one man? The reason is easy. For as that sex is frailer than man is, so is it easier to be entrapped in these gross snares of the devil, as was over well proved to be true by the serpent's deceiving of Eva at the beginning, which makes him the homelier with that sex and sign. She Speaks Volumes is now part of a new project, the Cauldron Audiozine. The Cauldron is being produced for SBAT, an online gathering of witches, and those with an interest in folklore, magic, and witchcraft. SBET will offer courses, podcasts, videos, and community events. You can learn more at sbet.tv. The most famous witch trial is perhaps the trial of the Maid of Orléans. Tried and executed for witchcraft, Joan of Arc was later made a saint by the same church that persecuted her. The church was at war as surely as France and England were, and the word of God took on a distinctly nationalistic view. In this case, Joan is for the church and for God, and that God and that church are for France. 
but the church and the state that are prosecuting Joan are English, and they are all knee-deep in the blood of the Hundred Years' War. Joan of Arc's trial is another trial that Murray undertakes a close reading of. Again, Murray seems to use the prosecutor's questioning as the definition of witchcraft. But also, again, her exhaustive research yields a summary of Joan's trial, which has rooted itself so deeply into the collective psyche to become legend. Murray examines the transcripts of the Joan of Arc trial, searching for evidence of her pagan practices. Not far from Dom Rémy, there is a certain tree that is called the Lady's Tree. Others call it the Fairy's Tree, beside which is a spring which cures fevers. It is a great tree, a beech from which comes the May. Older people, not of my lineage, said that the fairy ladies haunted there. I had heard my godmother say she had seen fairy women. I myself have never seen fairies at the tree that I know of. I made garlands at the tree with the other girls for the image of the blessed Mary of Domremy. Sometimes with the other children, I hung garlands on the tree. Sometimes we leave them, sometimes we took them away. I did not put chaplets on the fairy tree in honor of Saints Catherine and Margaret of. I have never done anything with or knew anything of those that came in the air with the fairies. I've heard they come on Thursday, Thursdays, but it is considered witchcraft. I frequently come to the tree in the spring alone, mostly at night, sometimes in the day but most often at that hour of divine service was celebrated in church in order to be alone. I danced round the spring and tree and afterwards. I hung many garlands and various herbs and flowers on the branches of the tree, made with my own hands, saying and singing before and after certain incantations and certain song. It is worth keeping in mind that Joan of Arc was 18 or so at the time of her trial. She was uneducated as were most of the women of the day, and certainly most peasant or rural farming women. Yet, she convinced enough people at 17 to maneuver her way to Charles VII and to bring about his coronation, which is stunning. And yes, one can see how the English of the day might attribute such extraordinary feats to witchcraft. But, listen, Joan believes she hears the voice of God and is guided by angels. This voice comes from God. I believe I do not tell you everything about it, and I am more afraid of failing the voices by saying what is displeasing to them than of answering you. You say that you are my judge. Take good heed of what you do, because in truth, I am sent by God, and you put yourself in great peril. Perhaps I shall not answer you truly in many things that you ask me concerning the revelations, for perhaps you would constrain me to tell things I have sworn not to utter, and so I should be perjured, and you would not want that. I do not believe Joan of Arc was a witch, at least not according to my own definition of witch. I don't even think the English thought she was a witch, but certainly it gave them leverage. The truth, as we know it, is that because she listened to the voice of God and to the apparitions of saints, she was able to set a king on a throne. Enough people must have believed she was sent from God, which in an era of religious superstition would not be as outrageous as it seems today. 
Was Joan hearing the voice of God or just hearing voices? And is there a difference? Regardless, the interest of nation building is evident through the story of Joan of Arc and what she comes to represent for France's national identity. Links to my research, including the transcripts for Joan of Arc's trial, can be found in the show notes. You can also visit SBAT TV for the reading list, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes also. A popular meme amongst witches on social media reads, We are the granddaughters of the witches you didn't burn. This meme summarizes the popular contemporary view of the witch trials of medieval Europe. But is it accurate? A comprehensive understanding of what has been called the burning times is challenging because the records of this program were written by the very people who initiated it. Were the women and men tried and executed witches in the way we understand the craft today? Were they practitioners of what we would now call the old ways? Or were they people who, simply for one reason or another, attracted the ire of their neighbors? Were the witch burnings, in fact, burning witches? Initially, the church focused on heresy. The church's official position was that witches did not exist. And because they did not exist, one could not bring charges of witchcraft to court. Witchcraft charges dramatically increased when the church changed its mind about the existence of witches, and then raised the possibility of making pacts with Satan. In her book, Miracles of Our Own Making, A History of Paganism, Liz Williams presents a more nuanced idea of witchcraft and magic in the Middle Ages, suggesting that up until the late 17th century, herbalism, folk magic, and rituals were practiced broadly even within the church. Members of the clergy would often be called upon to perform blessings and rites to ensure the fertility of the earth. The clergy would also engage the services of cunning folk. This is an excerpt from my interview with Liz Williams about her book. A link to the full episode will be in the show notes. An awful lot of people were practicing what we would now term magic in that period, but they were known as cunning folk, cunning men, cunning women. And these are more what we think of as the herbalists, um, the midwives to some extent, the healers, but also people who practice divination, people who were engaged in things like treasure finding, which was a massive part of Middle Age and Renaissance magic. Um, the church actually called quite a few people in to try and find treasure under, I think, the floor of St. Paul's Cathedral. And it was like you have magicians, cunning folk, and the clergy working together to try and find treasure. Now, that's not something that we do very much in the magical world today, but it was a really big deal in the Middle Ages. Um, and those people weren't touched. You know, they weren't arrested, um, they weren't prosecuted. The witch craze began in the 15th century, around 1450, and lasted until well into the 18th century. The last witchcraft execution in Europe being in 1782, which is just 10 years before Mary Wollstonecraft published her treatise on modern feminist philosophy, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Why were women disproportionately charged with witchcraft? A great deal of this history is only known to us through the court records, and they can hardly be considered objective. The truth, if it can be identified, must be coaxed out from between the lines, and like all truth, remains subjective, shaping itself to the lens that views it. In Abject Eroticism of Northern Renaissance Art, Yvonne Owens deconstructs the paintings and engravings of artist and Gothic influencer 
Hans Boldengrien. In the process, she illustrates how he shaped public perception of witches and women through his paintings and woodcuts, the memes of the medieval world. Well, he represented them as these kinds of uh, travesties of normal women. What was consistent throughout his depictions were these, these sort of effluents, vaginal effluents, these, these strange fumes and streams and, you know, like bubbling <laughs> exudations uh, from the witches' nether regions. Uh, my research suggested that when I compared his images with texts and theories that were contemporaneous with, with him and, and his work, he was depicting menstruation. He was depicting the, the so-called feminine pollution of menstruation as the essence or the basis of women's so-called evil or, or witchcraft. These bizarre and superstitious obsessions put before the state by the church gave permission for the institution of an even more deadly aspect of the patriarchy that still dictates global politics and economics today, the nation-state, explored in Llewellyn Barstow's book, Witch Craze. The James I of England referenced here is, of course, the same person as the James VI of Scotland, the same man who wrote Demonology and the King James Bible, said to be the most influential book in shaping English, and hence, colonial thinking. Any discussion of 16th century witch persecution must mention the growing power of the state in England. In 1604, for example, in the second week of King James I's first parliament, the House of Lords passed a much stricter witchcraft law, whereas before, the death penalty was invoked only when a witch's power caused death, now merely causing hurt through evil spirits or a second offence of using magic for finding stolen property, causing unlawful love, or intending to hurt or destroy a person would also bring the death sentence. The king's intense interest in witch hunting bore early fruit. The ducal and royal governments of Europe were becoming more efficient, centralized and powerful. In other words, more capable of controlling many aspects of more people's lives. Taxation, which fell primarily on the peasantry, increased greatly. Royal agents asserted their influence in parts of Europe never before interfered with. They demanded not only taxes and military levies, but also a new ideological conformity. Nationalism, as we know it, first reached rural Western Europe in the 17th century. Secular courts took over prosecution of sexual crimes matters formally reserved for the judgment in the more private sphere of church or neighborhood. The state was willing to take on the responsibility and expense of this jurisdiction because these moral judgments helped to define what it stood for and allowed the control of the most intimate aspects of the lives of its citizens. These governments were as intolerant as they were interfering. In an important study, R.I. Moore demonstrated how the European state became an organ of persecution, how in the 11th and 12th centuries, European governments began, for the first time, 
to identify groups as enemies of the state. Heretics, Jews, lepers, homosexuals, and to create the myths that would enable rulers to destroy these groups. Observing that there have been two major periods of persecution in Europe since the 16th and 17th centuries, the witch craze, and the 20th century, the Holocaust, more states that intolerance became part of the character of European society, and that in each case, it was the rulers, not the people, who originated and carried out the pogroms. In short, the chief motive behind European racism and bigotry was the drive for political power. Even though none of the victims were powerful enemies, they served as an excuse for governments to use powerful weapons against their own people. The Age of Enlightenment, reason, rationality, and science eventually ended the witch trials, and as Republican fervor swept Europe, it also weakened the stranglehold the church had on politics and the law. But this new paradigm of critical thinking and empiricism ended the witch trials because witchcraft and magic were considered to be superstitious. To add insult to injury, after enduring centuries of persecution, torture, imprisonment, and execution, witches are exiled to the realm of imaginary creatures. It may only be the Age of Reason's disbelief in magic and witchcraft that stopped the cruelty. This is a critical area of study in terms of women's history, because part of the struggle to understand women's history is the struggle to acknowledge that women have a history distinct from men. History, as we all know, is written by the winners. Winners who control reproduction, education, industry, media, and the law. We don't know how many women were executed under the anti-witchcraft laws. Some feminists and scholars have said millions, but modern scholarship puts the figure somewhere between 40,000 and 110,000 women. We do know that women accounted for about 80% of those executed. But I don't think the number is the material point. It was a significant enough campaign of terror that the burning times are still studied and that we still live with the demonization of witchcraft, our rituals, deities, sabbats, and of women themselves. Through her exhaustive and meticulous research and documentation, Murray believed she illustrated that there are enough similarities in the accused stories to consider the possibility that there was some form of religious practice going on throughout Europe, and that it had been going on for a long enough period of time for its influence to spread. However, the prosecutors were working from the same or similar manuals, the most famous of these being the Malleus Maleficarum. As they were feeding the confessions to the accused, it is no wonder that Murray found similarities throughout Europe. But I can't help wondering if Murray herself had a fair trial. She was ridiculed at the time of her study, and in some ways still is. But what if she had been amongst a number of female academics and scholars? Would the discourse have refined her inquiry and led to a more rational understanding of this aspect of women's history? We think of the witch trials as being a hysterical reaction of a church with too much state control. But they won. We don't really believe in magic or witches or witchcraft, which is why one cannot be charged with witchcraft today. 
We think of magic as being in touch with some consciousness larger than ourselves. But do we really believe we can do magic? I am not sure that the burning times are worth examining to learn more about witchcraft or magic. But I think understanding this period in history is critical to understanding the patriarchy as the enemy of magic, witchcraft, and women. Through looking critically at this period, we can trace how we arrived at denying magic, intuition, visions, and divination, despite the evidence that we have employed these skills throughout the history of humanity. One would assume that hysteria over witchcraft belongs in the distant past, along with the plague and thinking the earth is the center of the solar system. But daily in India, across Africa, and many other parts of the world, women, particularly older women, are accused and executed for witchcraft. Whenever a society becomes intent on limiting the autonomy of women, accusations of witchery are sure to follow. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are several ways you can support my work. Share this with your family and friends, make a one-time donation, or sign up for an SBAT subscription and help us make more media that explores witchcraft, magic, folklore, and philosophy. You can learn more at sbat.tv.